0: Is in session and once again i am your host scott white also known as professor rpg today at the rpg university we have a new entry in our developer showcase series that aims to highlight those creators and developers of rpgs that have a hand in creating those experiences we love this time around i have the absolute privilege of welcoming hunter bond and mike dukarm the pair of writers over at berserk games uh, the developer behind the retro-inspired RPG, Infernex, Welcome, gents. How's it going?
1: Pretty good. We're Berserk Studio, though. I'm going to throw it out there because we're so used to it, and everyone confuses us with the wonderful people who make Tabletop Simulator, which we're not.
0: <laughs> Apologies, Berserk Studio. No worries. I will, I will fix that in post.
1: No, I figured. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you uh, can edit this but- whole out, but it, it does remind me of the funny thing of people being like, did you make Tabletop Simulator? Like, no. <laughs> We didn't. That's,
2: that's like half my emails every week. Uh huh. <laughs> and I get a lot of emails. Yeah. Oh, if they're man.
0: happy emails, you are. If they're not happy, no.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, when it's nope. tech support for them, it's less fun.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, welcome, guys. How are you both doing today? Doing
2: fantastic. How about you? Great. Doing great.
0: Doing well. Doing well. Uh, But yes, you two are writers. For the upcoming retro uh, kind of Castlevania inspired Infernax, but before we get into that, I want to take a trip back down down the RPG memory lane oh, and kind of yeah. get an idea of where you both got your start in uh, kind of nerddom. Like, uh, what's what's some of your nerd cred?
2: Talk nerdy go to me.
1: You got to go first, Mike.
2: Oh, I got to go first. Oh, God. Yeah, you got well, sonority. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, well, I've been playing video games since the 80s. I, I'm an old man now. I started playing on, what I want to say on the NES around 88, something like that. Whenever like, I finally got my hands on it, before that, I had a like, weird ass standy without 1000 keyboard, you would plug in cassette <laughs> tapes in there and you would play froder for five minutes. <laughs> so that's where I started in basically my addiction to video games.
0: Nice. What are some of your like favorite genres and stuff? Oh, Have well, you always been a fan of like RPGs?
2: Not really. i mostly like strategy game usually. I I love RPGs, but they take so much time and energy for me that I need that that bad, cancer that you can just play 10 minutes. But Mm. because I've just been starting uh, the uh, new Final Fantasy remix and I, I just lost a week of my life there. like just playing until the hours of the day.
0: Final Fantasy. I'm not familiar with that series. Uh, (laughs) Let's be one of those more niche, niche, niche franchises. It's very (laughs) underground.
2: It's just starting to, it's
1: starting to make some waves. I think we'll see it come over from Japan pretty soon.
0: Uh, That's cool. I'll have to take a look at it. Sounds nifty. (laughs) what about you hunter
1: oh boy buckle up (laughs) no i uh i'm a i'm a turbo nerd so uh my uh my mom was always really supportive of me being a giant nerd growing up which is cool uh so i actually started playing i mean i started playing video games really young my first console that i owned myself obviously was nes but before that we had a uh my cousin Scott, who's going, my mom had me pretty young. And so um, when Yo, I was like, I'm a,
0: your cousin? <laughs> what?
1: Yeah. I mean, that'd be cool. We could hang. But uh, my mom was like in her 20s when I was like, five you know and so my cousin scott was in college because they were uh, roughly of an age so he lived in our garage for a long time so i had like a cool uncle basically who was my cousin right like <laughs> hanging out in the garage who had any an nes and so he taught me like how to play mario brothers and stuff and he had a combo 64 so he showed me how to play like a ton of stuff on there um but like my real real getting deep into it started around i started playing dnd in second edition when i was nine So I've been playing D&D for 26 years. (laughs) So I've been mostly dungeon mastering for almost 26 years now. Um, And I've had like the same handful of friends basically since kindergarten. So I've been playing D&D for over two decades off and on with a bunch of groups, right? But um, with those same handful of guys, we've been playing for (laughs) over 25 years together, which is crazy to say now. It's uh, it's a shame that this is an audio only podcast because right behind me where I'm sitting, uh, I don't know if you, you know, those Ikea k shelves that are like four squares by two squares.
0: Yo, I have four by three squares <laughs> behind me with my models and some of my minis. See,
1: Whoa. there you go. M- mine are, I've got two of the, uh, eight squares laying on their sides and every single one of them is just full of RPG manuals. Um, I own, nice. um, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds, uh, Obviously, like D&D is the huge heavy hitter. I own every edition, including all the box sets from first edition, which I play. I don't just collect. I mostly play everything mm-hmm. I buy. Um, I'm a really big fan of like indie RPGs. You know, I've got into obviously rifts at some point. I've like, a mm-hmm. you know, read through like Burning Wheel. Like, I, you know, you name it. I like it. <laughs> I don't know if I've convinced anyone to play it, but I've probably owned and read it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's that. Around twelve, I got really into Warhammer 40k, which is the the path, right? Um, Right. Of course, I played Space Marines because that's the law when you're a twelve year old.
0: (laughs) I'm guessing you also like vanilla ice cream with a side of more vanilla ice cream.
1: Yeah, you know what? The worst part is I played Ultramarines too, so you know, dunk all you want. Super vanilla. Yep. (laughs) But played a lot of 40k, and then like in my when I got like out of high school, I did kind of taper off from tabletop for a pretty long time Mm -hmm. because. The time required, of course, getting a group together when you're in your, you know, 18, 19, I played in a lot of bands and stuff. So the time that I dedicated to tabletop kind of took a backseat for a few years, Mm -hmm. but I never stopped playing video games um, because basically my whole life is like my first job was running a game store in high school. I didn't go for the last two years. Uh, I went to independent study and ran a game store full time. And then when I graduated, went to college. And once I got out of college, I got hired to work at Jinx, the clothing company. So I was there like photographer and eventually head of marketing. So I've been in games for a long time. So, Impressive.
0: Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> just as an uh, aside, Ultramarines are perfectly fine. I, I, my main army is the Grey Knights, which is cool, just cool. basically vanilla with sprinkles. See, um, that's not
1: fair because like they didn't even exist as really a playable force because I started playing Warhammer in third edition.
0: <laughs> oh, Wow. Yeah, Yeah. I jumped in on 6th, I want to say.
1: Yeah, like back when I started, like the only people who could play Sisters of Battle had an all-metal army. (laughs) I've been playing so long, Dark Eldar were new. (laughs) Like they just (laughs) got introduced the edition I joined. So, yeah.
0: The before times. Yep. Uh, But very, very cool. So this all culminated your guys' experience and, and whatnot into, I guess... Take or Mike, we'll go with you. Take us to how you arrived at Berserk Studios, um, and kind of where you're at right now. Like, what was your your path into the games industry?
2: I uh, first started the video game industry. I want to say in 2007. I was hired to do a Flash <laughs> integration back then because it was a Flash was a thing. And <laughs> I worked at Fremont for about two years, and I met the people from that. Eventually, formed Berserk there. And they eventually hired me to just be the community manager there because I love the sound of my own voice usually. <laughs> so they, they thought it was funny. I thought it was funny. So they hired me. And I've been with them since 2012 now. 12, 13, yeah, 12, 2012. And I've just been slowly just taking more and more tasks, went from CM to just being a writer as well, to biz dev, to coder, to web dev, HR at this point.
1: Mike is how, the everything doer, for sure. Yeah, ha, ha, how
0: do you have time to do any of those tasks? I don't really do that. As honest, you balance I, everything else.
1: Yeah, that's why I, I just, just half-ass everything. That's not true. <laughs> that's why they eventually got me, yeah. actually.
2: <laughs> yeah, eventually, like I realized that I wasn't doing a good job at just keeping track of everything, so Hunter is my my fail safe is making sure that we don't mess up too much and he's actually bringing in better ideas than I can come up with
1: I'm his his factotum. I'm the one who, who does whatever needs doing and he's the one who does what needs doing. So it's a two line of a defense.
0: There you go. So you're like each other's a team.
1: Yeah, it does work well. It's like a, it's a Venn diagram of tasks, right? it works pretty Mm -hmm. well. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And what about you, Hunter? I mean, you mentioned, uh, coming out of high school or going into yeah. high school, running game store, and then going into mean, jinx. Like, how did you wind up as a writer at uh, Berserk?
1: Well, yeah, like you, like I said, it's funny to think back how like everything I did ended up getting me to where I am because ran the game store, right? That was just a passion thing. I did that when I was from, uh, was it like from 16 to 18 or whatever? And mm-hmm. uh, so, wow, that's crazy. So that was like in 2003. And then there was a long break while I was in college just study. I actually went to school for photography and ironically enough that's how i ended up in games in the first place because i worked at jinx as their product photographer first then they made me their head of marketing uh and i worked there for a handful of years and then took a pretty long break uh where i went and like built stuff for a living uh went on like a weird sabbatical where i built like a cyberpunk bar and razors corporate office but during that whole time mike and i had been we've been friends because my, my girlfriend katie uh used to um like do some news coverage for indie games uh for like with her friends for a website and we had met at PAX so she introduced me to Mike and so while I was not technically working at a game studio we'd still fly to PAX or E3 and stuff and help Berserk run their booth just as friends mm-hmm. and eventually after Just Shapes and Beats came out uh that was when Mike was like hey I know you're technically retired from marketing uh, would you come do some marketing for us? And I did that for about, well, it was about two years of mostly doing that and community and, you know, all the, basically the extra, the, the, all the work that Mike and I do that is not coding and art, right? All the mm-hmm. extra. And then, um, cause I'm like a, I have a background and I, when I was in college, I was also working on a degree in linguistics and uh, uh, I was copy editing all of the scripts for Infernax Because, um, you know, most of the team are native uh, Quebecois speakers, not English speakers. Everyone speaks English fine, but there's like, you know, really specific idioms that don't directly translate. So I was doing a lot of editing Mm -hmm. for that. And as we started, like really in the last year, the the game expanded a lot. And as we added like new quests and stuff, there became a lot of holes in the script, right? Every single small (laughs) thing you add, you don't think Mm -hmm. about it, but it's like, oh, this little interaction is 25 lines of text now. And eventually, yeah, they were like, Hey, do you want to like write a lot of it? Do you wanna come in? Cause like a lot of what's there from the older days is Mike. And then Mike and I work together on a lot of the new stuff. So it's a couple different phases. Like the, you know, the game script is really sort of a a tapestry. Why I always say I'm one of the writers on Infranx, right? Because like people like Simon and Lash are are one of our founders who did mostly coding, also wrote a bunch of stuff that stayed in the script. You know, like it's a team effort. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was just a transition slowly, but surely kind of how Mike started as a CM and is now, <laughs> etc. cetera. Yeah, he doesn't even know. <laughs> I started pretty, pretty much as like doing community management, social media and marketing and PR and then like taking over, helping write the game itself in the last like year and a half, really, because I was really, really passionate about Infranex. Like it was actually on hiatus when I got brought onto the team. And I kind of made it my personal mission to try and like push to get it picked back up.
0: Wow. That's, that's so cool. And it's now I'm curious, um, Mike, from your point of view, with like, these style of games, like these old retro games, kind of the Castlevania, they were, I don't want to say that story was in the background per se, but it, it, it was far less, it was far simplis- more simplistic than they are today how did you i guess how much of the story is more of a modern um kind of level of narrative or did you try and stay closer to that kind of not more simplistic form that was aligned with the more retro style games that this appears to be based off of
2: uh, at first it was actually a very simplistic story we didn't have that much story because it was a game that was made in two weeks like the when the first prototype we did in 2010 it was like i want to say maybe two hours long and there was almost no story there was no dialogue in there that's more when we picked it back up in 2015 that we realized that we should probably be telling a bigger story and we didn't want to we wanted to be close to those old games we did didn't want to be like so close that it's exactly like we're just redoing the same thing. We wanted kind of to a more modern touch to it, even though it was still very retro inspired. So that's when Hunter actually, actually picked up the story there.
1: Yeah. We just, it, I mean, a big part of like the underlying thing to a lot of our answers to these questions, we should probably just get out of the way is Infernax been in off and on development for the better part of 11 years. So oh, wow. Its final phase really was a hard push in the last two, right? But it was a lot of long gaps and things like that. It's really, like Mike was saying, the original version was a Flash game that they, you know, the two of our founders kind of made in a weekend, and it kind of slowly chipped away from there. But when we picked it all back up in, was it, it wasn't 2015, it had to have been, this last one was like 2017, you think? 2018? The
2: the first time we picked it back up was in 2015. Then we did re-pick it back up in 2018.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So this final push was the one, cause I've been at Berserk for, as a employee for like three years now. And, um, uh, it actually kind of started with every year Berserk has, uh, like we have a, a at least not these last two years, but every <laughs> normal year, uh, uh, you know, me and we have another coder, Kojak, who worked on Infernax, who lives out in Chicago. We're kind of Berserk South. And then the rest is based up in Quebec city. We would fly up to meet, like with them, and we'd all have like dinner and hang out to celebrate the anniversary for the studio in December. Um, and that was actually one of the first times I got to meet uh, Etienne, who's the creative director on the game and one of the co founders. And because for years, Mike and I had been running the booths, and because of being so far away, I had never met Etienne. And it was kind of like this uh, urban tale. He'd be like, oh yeah, Infernax, <laughs> the game that we have. And so when I finally got to meet him, I got to basically. Uh, badger him with how stoked I would be if we would consider maybe working on it, and he was—he it's funny because I left Canada not thinking it was going to happen, and then Mike was like, "I think Etienne wants to work on Infranax again," <laughs> 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 which was awesome. <laughs> yeah, so it's just uh, it, it its a cool project to have been able to have, even though I came in realistically at the tail end, and it was you know in its bones what it was going to be before i got involved being able to be a part of Mm -hmm. what like brought it together at the end was it means a lot to me it's a huge deal
0: oh yeah i i imagine and mike i'm curious um what has what would you say from being around far longer and seeing kind of the evolution of infernax what has kind of remained constant and what's like really (laughs) fluctuated
2: I mean, the best part of it all is that it kind of looks exactly the same like it used to be, but it's so much different in the back because all the graphics are basically, I want to say that they're the same. They're very similar the, the aspect ratio change and stuff like that. Like very technical things change in the back, but on the forefront, it still look almost exactly the same as it did 12 years ago. It's just that we added so much in mechanics on it. We added so much lore. Mm-hmm. There's like how like is five six storylines or something like that we added more skills we added change that change things that change according to what you do in the game as well everything that the entire backbone of the game just upgraded so much while still retaining that charm of it kind of looks like a game from 82 right but everything went <laughs> back is a lot more modern and actually used to be
0: and gory it's it's far gorier than i remember games being on the uh the nes i have to say
2: yeah that was actually kind of the joke because we wanted to make a game that could not have launched back then it was like it was like a mid- mythical game that kids would talk about on the uh on the playground like that game that was too way too gory to be like to be out right, and they it's found like a, a se- secret secret bootleg sensor. game that yeah. someone
1: found <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: I remember those days tuck shedding uh, rumors and stories on the playground or looking at imported magazines. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a huge part those, of like those what times. we wanted. Cause there's, there are aspects of the design of the game itself too that have expanded. Like for instance, like there are secret playthroughs that unlock um, based on you playing the game. Like there are variants that change everything there are cheat codes that like, you know, and you don't have to actually, you know, we didn't gate those things behind like a play state, like is more of a modern design, right? Where you have to mm-hmm. play, oh, you have to defeat this difficulty before unlocking. If if your friend tells you the code because he beat a certain mode, you can just put it in and play that way if you want, which was important like to us because that's the, you know, like bringing your notepad full of, uh, you know, like pull out your spiral bound notebook with your uh, Mega Man save codes to like trade with your friends. Yeah, exactly right. That's a huge part of like what made that fun. So you can do that with the game. Like, I'm curious, we've talked about like, I wonder if it's going to end up on a wiki pretty quick, like how that will disseminate, but that's intentional for sure.
0: It's it, I guess, speaking of this, um, for people that might not be familiar with what Infernax is, what is it?
1: (laughs) I can do it. (laughs) I'm excited.
0: Yeah, yeah, marketing man. Give, yeah. me, give me the marketing pitch.
1: So um, the, the pitch is this. Zelda 2 and Castlevania 2 are the two largest, most obvious influences on the game, right? The moment you pick it up, if you've played either of those two any amount of time, you'll see it. It's pretty blatant because we both like we're all we all really like those games. But it would be unfair to deny that at the time when they came out, they were not universally beloved is a nice way to put it. You know, each of them, is the sequel in a series that is now crazy long running, but they came out at a time where the the art of sequels hadn't been perfected. And so you got some weird stuff, right? You got the sequel to Zelda, a top-down kind of RPG, the standard, you know, to this like Link to the Past is basically a continuation of that style. But there was this weird little side, little side quest, real quick, where they made Zelda 2, which is like an RPG 2D. Yeah platforming there's a lot of weird cool stuff in it that's saddled with like it's got a pretty high difficulty there are parts of it that aren't really explained that well in the game you know like uh, anyone who's played it knows so we were like the original inspiration was like mike said they wanted to make a game that couldn't have existed because it's super gory and over the top and ridiculous but take mechanics that are like cool and you know like how many times has there been sequels to the beloved versions of all these games right Mm -hmm. (laughs) plenty But there hasn't been a lot of sequels to Zelda (laughs) 2 or the Castlevania 2. There's just not as many people tilling that soil. So taking those and then marrying it with like berserks kind of over the top, because like the studio, you know, a lot of people have asked us questions uh, about how Just Shapes and Beats, which is a game that the studio is, you know, pretty well known for now. uh, Like, oh, wow, you're going from Just Shapes and Beats to Infernax must be crazy. And of course, it's more that like Just Shapes and Beats is kind of a unique offering in our studios backlog, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of our games back in the day had uh big muscly Viking dudes with machine guns, blowing stuff up. Like that's, that's very yeah. berserk. Yeah. So like Infernax was made during that period, of course. Right. So it's almost like it's a real Encino man situation where you just like mm-hmm. unearth, you unearth it. And like, <laughs> it came out fully, you know, formed and then we just polished it to where it is now. Cause like the big additions in the last two years have been polish as far as like making the graph, like the, graphical animations better, making the, the physics feel better, making the hit detection feel better, adding in things that we just think are funny or feel good. And then the biggest development was like where we diverge from basically just being a slavish homage to these games that we like is that kind of serendipitously in the process of working on it, we we made a demo to show at PAX, right? Because the mm-hmm. original demo had grown quite long in the tooth considering it was originally made in flash and uh rest in peace rip. you know it's funny we still use it in our pipeline though adobe animate is still a pretty serious part of our yeah oh yeah we have a lot of internal tools that we use to to make that happen but we you know of course work in unity now because of it ports and all of that Mm -hmm. but so we were working on that first unity port demo for packs the first packs we showed it at was was it 2019 mike
2: uh 2019 yeah
1: Okay, yeah, it was wet 20, PAX West 2019 and uh, uh, Simon or Lash, uh, one of the the main coders and the co-founder of Berserk, uh, he came up with this idea that at the very beginning of it, really, really early on, right, you're presented with this split second, you know, it's not like a, it's a QTE, a quick time event, right? But you have time to decide where someone is like, it's not a spoiler, so I'm just going to explain because the context is important that a guy says, mm-hmm. please kill me, right? And the options that you're given are to to try and aid him or to do what he says and kill him, right? And that interaction is cool. And it had like a little bit of an effect on the demo, but it was sort of just sort of an interaction to show you that choices will occur. And so many people responded really positively to it at the the show and Simon just kind of went wild. And so that actually changed. That's kind of when I got brought in to do writing and stuff because it branched the story so much. It went from a game that was going to have what, one ending, two endings, maybe, to a bunch Plus. of endings that depend on those choices that you make. Because there are branching paths now based on this, it's you know, the fate system or the morality system, whatever you want to call it. Um, you'll be presented with choices, both in that format where it's a you know an event where you have to make a binary choice, or like what op- you know, which quests you choose to take, right? Because some of the quests you'll be presented objectively are not good right it's not a good Mm -hmm. thing to do and if you choose to do that it has an effect on the world and the perception that people have of you and like who will talk to you and things like that um it's it's pretty wild to uh, have seen that kind of develop and so basically the to tie a tail on this very long kite tail we took the aspects of these games that we love used them to inspire the design of this game as far as style and the elements that are included and then brought in a lot of elements that really make it a, a meteor experience without in any way, shape or form making it like a non-classic experience if you want to just play it as a straightforward thing and make your choices that's fine right you don't need to get deep with it if you don't feel like it you can any one of the playthroughs if you just choose whatever reality path you want is a very satisfying would be a perfect nes game as far as length and playthrough but if you want to play through it five times that's also an option that's available to you with the way that it's been designed right hmm yeah
0: it's now you bring up that this is kind of like an homage to Simon's Quest and um, mm-hmm. Legend of Zelda 2. I'm I have to know, does an NPC somewhere say "I am Error"?
2: Not anymore. <laughs> it used, used to. to. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I I did pitch I uh what was it? I am Earl, but they also didn't want that. No, it 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 was in there at one point. You know, one thing. We didn't do in this actually that a lot of people have expected. There's not as much really, really on the nose homage as you'd think. And that was mm-hmm. partially because Etienne, the creative director, and that's the same thing with actually humor too. There's a lot of humor in it, but you encounter the most obvious, blatant humor when you start subverting like what the normal quest line for your character would be, right? Because you, you, you know, an interesting thing about writing the game was, and that this was a huge challenge, is, you know, you don't think about it really. But in most games, you're just a guy, right? Mm -hmm. You're just a person. And so people don't have to inherently be respectful. They can just send you on quests or whatever. But in this game, you play Alcidor, who's a duke, and you're the duke of this land. (laughs) So all the people that you're interacting with are like guards who technically work for you and are like vassals of you. So you (laughs) have to like find that way to make it. So it's like, would you please help (laughs) instead of no one can say, go get my boots, right?
0: yeah
1: right and so um it yeah it's
0: yeah how do you give your your liege your lord uh fetch quests
1: well the answer is it's very complicated and it (laughs) took a lot of my life (laughs) but Um, it was important to etienne sorry to, mm -hmm. to him that a that that's acknowledged in all of the quests it's when someone is not respectful that's an intentional choice where the that character is intentionally not being respectful based on rank but also that we didn't just like get goofy it's easy to fall back on goofy lines mainline and mike and i being honest we would absolutely
2: do it if given. That's, that's what we've been doing for 12 years now we've been making silly ass games online so that's right. that's always been our in our core that's that's what we want to do but that's something that we wanted to try different this time
1: yeah and so the result is that some of the humor that stays in the main line of the game is is kind of similar to like, you know, a 90s era animation humor where there's like mm-hmm. the two levels of joke where there's the joke that's OK for a kid. And then there's an adult joke. There was jokes that were in there that like pass the sniff test as far as story, but are still funny in context. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was cool. It's a great exercise. I think the game is funnier for it, to be honest.
2: Yeah, I think the serious tone actually like it brought up the few moments that are kind of like situational humor. It just <laughs> yeah. it, it lifts it up so much. Yeah. The contrast really increases
1: the joke for sure.
0: Oh, that sounds cool. Now, Mike, from your perspective with having worked on more projects at um, Berserk studios, what are, what would you say have been some of the um, biggest obstacles or things that you've had to overcome, whether it's, uh, coding or with all these branching storylines um what's been kind of the hardest to in your opinion to kind of juggle or uh deal with in this particular game
2: oh it's bridging like 12 years of game design and accepted like accessibility options and mm-hmm. like, like social things that uh, they were not like problems 12 years ago. Like 12 yeah. years ago, all you had to think about was to make sure that people were not having seizures while playing your game. But, uh, we have to think about people with different skill levels. We have to think about people with different uh well accessibility issues, like people with yep. mobility issues, people that can't see green, <laughs> people that can't read text and things like that. And that's been so hard because it's a game that's supposed to be emulating a game that was made before games were player friendly. Because like mm-hmm. playing Zelda Two is not easy. It's easy when no. you've played it like forty five years, but it's not yeah. easy when you just pick it up. Like if you give Zelda Two to somebody that's almost never played a game before, oh god, they're gonna, they're, they're gonna oh, try right. their eyes out. It's not a game that's for people almost.
0: A lot yeah. of those old games are oh, yeah. 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 Like nothing the, makes the you... Book
2: of Game Design was not written in eighty two. it was of like, yeah. they were our learning as it would go they didn't have 30 years of game design behind them to actually like get them to make the game easier mm-hmm. so that's that's been the hardest part was just like pick up that design and just make it more modern but also make it feel like it's still an old game yeah
1: yep that's it I mean a big a big part of it too is is balancing the challenge because you know from creative direction top down it was important that the game be challenging so you know we included mm-hmm like a casual mode, right? But the casual mode is still technically as difficult, like the the maneuvers and things you have to do. The game doesn't get easier. It's just less punishing in that, like, when you die, you don't lose progress. You you go back to a previous save state with all of the XP and gold that you earned, right? So even Mm -hmm. if you keep banging your head against the section, you're not just losing you're not losing traction. You're, you're slowly accumulating XP and gold that can be spent on items and upgrades. So you will get more powerful, even if you're not succeeding in theory. Right. Mm-hmm. But you do have to still beat the game. Like if you beat the game in casual mode, of course there are concessions. Like there are certain things like in, you know, the castles the that you fight, you know, the you know, the boss fights in castles. Um, there's an, an extra checkpoint that isn't in the hardcore mode that is in casual mode. Those are added in for, for ease of play. But if you beat the game, you beat the game, right? The maneuvers mm-hmm. required to beat it. You did the same inputs in the same reaction times, which is why Mike was saying with the accessibility stuff was difficult to include because the game is an older game, like not it's based on yeah. an older style of game, but the game is literally older, too. Yeah. And so finding a way to integrate those has been challenging. But we did make a point of doing it because it was important to us to try and make it at least as accessible as we could within the bounds of it being what it already was. Right. We definitely Mm -hmm. wanted to make that effort and I hope it enables as many people as possible, right. To enjoy it. I think that it will. um, And hopefully that will, because of course you just want everyone to be able to have a chance to enjoy it. It's not going to appeal to everyone, but you don't want people to feel like they can't do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, it's, I can't imagine the the, kind of the difficulty of like that the team had to go through to balance. It's like, okay, like we want as many people to be able to play. We want to include these features that are so important nowadays and such a focus on, on so many game releases, everyone, like that's one of the main things people want to know about is what the accessibility options are. But at the same time creating them in such a way that it doesn't, sacrifice your the development team's actual vision for what the game is like sure. I think there's a a, a tough balance mm-hmm. nowadays where creating the options or the accessibility options so they're available to folks but I feel like a lot of people also nowadays just go in expecting that every game has to be t- like okay for them
1: I think it's hard. It's hard to make that happen for that. Like, you know, it's not a spoiler to talk about what we've included. Right. So one of the big things is, um, you know, a game like Celeste was built from the, it's beautiful, right? Celeste Mm -hmm. is probably one of the pinnacles of accessibility as far as indie games go. And like, I remember playing it and it just blew my mind how thoughtful it was, but it was built a much later than in originally and B from the ground up with that intention. Right. Like Mike was saying, like, 12, 12 11 12 years ago the idea even of a, it was a flash game so of course it didn't have accessibility but the concept was barely there and so it, we added the things that were probably going to have the largest effect like the ability to there there's an like you know you can gain uh, is it an infinite jump or is it fly i can't remember what we said it's, on. Jump. it's
2: basically yeah. like flappy bird
1: yeah, so you can infinite jump, right, to get yourself through platforming sections you're struggling with. And of course there's invincibility. So you can t- toggle those on and off if you'd like. And the combination of those are going to let quite a few people be able to, you know, get through yeah. any challenging sections that they wouldn't be able to. There's a handful more, but like those two were the easiest things to be able to modify so that people who have challenge with the the, you know, because the, the game does obviously have it it's not a Dark Souls experience as far as difficulty, but it's a much harder than an easy game. You know what I mean? It falls mm-hmm. somewhere in that valley between like, and it's interesting. Another thing you talk about too, as far as accessibility is like beyond settings, you know, an, an intentional choice in creative was to leave certain things mysterious. And so it's been interesting watching people work, you know, review the game and, and hearing feedback and stuff. Cause there are some things that are left, I wouldn't say unexplained at all. Like they're explained. Every single thing you're supposed to do is to some degree explained in game, but it's not lampshaded like modern game design can be in certain places, mm-hmm. and that's not unintentional. Like a conversation that me and Mike and Etienne and Lash and everyone had, because while we were talking about how to write the lines to to tip people off, for instance, um, something Etienne brought up in a conversation was that you know in one of the older Elder Scrolls games. There were certain quests that, you know, without a quest tracker, you had to like open in, you know, in the game, diegetically open a book and read the book and the book would tell you where you need to go. Opening the book wouldn't be the act that immediately logs a quest. And he liked that. He liked that sort of like you need to pay attention sort of aspect. So there are parts of the game where a thing that you need to know is something that you'll be told, but it won't necessarily be exactly at the moment. It won't be a tool tip that pops up in front of the thing, right? You'll have to have paid some attention while playing the game. So people who just blaze through without paying attention to any NPC dialogue may eventually be like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's an interesting choice to make because it is absolutely an intentional homage to the style of game that we are paying homage to, right? Where like... There's definitely not a lot of, you know, the the notorious Simon's Quest NPCs who tell you to jump off cliffs. <laughs> that's that's uh, not the classic. problem at all. <laughs> but there, you know, there are definitely times when you have to think instead of rely on a UI tooltip. And um, that's intentional. You know, that's part of what makes it the game that it is.
0: Very cool. That's, it, it, I, I love speaking with, developers and people who work on games I went to school uh for game design doing more of the art side so I, cool. I love diving into kind of the methodology um that goes into behind the scenes during developing games so it's it's very interesting to hear you mention all that it's what I absolutely love is coming from an era like I was born in 88. So I grew up, I rem- I have memories of the NES, but I really have a lot of super fond memories of the super Nintendo and like late. NES. we're, we're of an
1: age. Yeah. You and yeah. I are about a year apart. So it's pretty similar. I started gaming real hard, real young, but same, yeah. yeah. Um, but
0: it's, it's so cool to see the resurgence of like these style of games. Yeah. And I, I have to say I, the pixel art, you, your team or the team over there uh, at Berserk Studios has man- has put into Infern X is so gorgeous. And like, especially like the death animations and things like that, It's it's so cool to see. And I am a firm believer that unlike kind of like older 3D games and even like current 3D games, eventually they'll show their age. I think good pixel art will always look damn good.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's cool. I mean any sort of highly stylized art definitely helps, right? Like Wind Waker still looks great. Mm-hmm. That's yeah.
2: It's like like everything that's not like supposed to be photorealistic usually ends up have at least having some charm. Like it's hard to find charm <laughs> in photorealistic uh, photorealistic PS1 games. But it's a lot like more weird re- artistic to look at sixteen-bit or eight-bit games mm-hmm. on that side.
1: I really like the dichotomy too, between the pretty simple gameplay graphics of Infrinax, right? Which is firmly grounded in NES era, like resolution, but the, um, some of the animations that come up, especially in the, the, when you get to make choice, the choice sections, a lot of them have custom animations and those are actually done by Mark. Who's the third co-founder of Berserk and is one of the other artists. Um, those are like a little more high res, obviously than the NES would have been able to do, but Mm -hmm. they're so beautiful. It's so cool. like, (laughs) Mark's Mark's art is a really awesome inclusion into the game. It's kind of when you see it for the first time, it really steps up like the visual presentation.
2: Yeah, that art was also done in the last part as well. We we mm-hmm. did like four different artistic revamp of the game since it's been yeah. done for twelve oh, years wow. now. So every we time we would pick it back up, we always figure it out. Well, all right. Well, I guess the art is kind of dated now. We should probably redo it all. About. <laughs>
1: Ironic that it was old already, but then got dated over time. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. And kind of t-
0: going along with the the revamp um, line of thought, it's what's been, what was one of the biggest kind of revamps, if any, in terms of like the lore or story that you guys went through, whether it dropped or um, got added in?
2: It has to be the, uh, the fate system that's been the uh-huh largest chunk of the game that's in there now because yeah, yeah. It, it used to just be a two or three hour game and now because of it it can be up to like 20 30 hours it added so much lore so much work to do it's insane like how much it ended up uh adding up to the game
1: yeah the nice thing too though is you know i'm uh, I'll tell on myself a little bit by saying like, I like casual mode in the game quite a bit. Like I could beat it if I needed to in hardcore, but that mode isn't like the only way to experience it. Right. But also in, in a similar vein, any one of the branching paths that you play through again is like a satisfying experience, right? Like I think that the conversation we had as we were writing it and designing it and stuff was let's assume each person's only going to play it one time. Right like so that when they leave they'll be like neat (laughs) they don't want to walk away with like oh you should have done this of course there are certain endings that i think are cooler (laughs) but they're all pretty solid right like it's a i mean obviously they far outstrip the satisfaction you get from uh, your average nes game playthrough (laughs) but the (laughs) the branching paths all that got added kind of at the end and the game became deep like it didn't have a much like the NES games it was inspired by, right? The point of the game was that there was evil and it needed to die. And it became more than that. And so, yeah, the, the inclusion of that fate system and morality system really just kicked the game up a notch.
0: So how much, like, to what extent does the branching, like the fate system taken into effect? Like, will there only be some bosses you fight depending on it, the path yep. you go down mm-hmm. or...
1: Certain endings are shorter than others, for instance, because of that. Oh, that's like cool. you. Yeah, you don't fight every single boss on every single playthrough. There are certain, especially, there are a handful of playthroughs that go some places.
0: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's, I'm curious, like, I want to get your guys' thoughts on, like, your writing process. Like, with a game like this, where... um there is a lot of lore. Where do you start? Like, do you start by developing and fleshing out like the world it takes place, or is it more focused on this is it like very this is what's in the game, or do you expand on like you 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 have a, a lot more that you know about like the world that it takes place in?
2: Well, the process, what's your process? The process is very we call it iterative. That we we start <laughs> with something and then we see where the game wants to go. Mm-hmm. So. With X, we started with a smaller game, and then we figured out, oh, we should add this. And then when you add this, you realize that you need something else, and it just keeps piling up on top of it. So that's pretty much how the story worked. That we had mm-hmm. one smaller story, and then we decided, well, it, it's missing something here, so you add something. And when you add that something, it sprawled up a bunch of new things that you need to do all around it, and then it just keeps going that, that, like that. And then you, since you did all that for this part. Then the other part down there kind of feels like small, yeah. so you have to do like this entire part. Of let's make it sure. Let's make sure that it's comparable to the other part. Yeah. just a keep big vicious circle of you keep upgrading something and then you have to upgrade everything you know, to get it back up to snush with it.
1: I think the analogy that makes sense to me is like as a dungeon master, right? Mm-hmm. I think the way that it feels like we worked on this was that we we started with some notes, you know, some hastily was, you realized your game was at five o'clock. It's about four <laughs> o'clock. You wrote down some notes. You had like the name of a tavern, some goals. Yeah. yeah. And branched out from there. Right. So the game that we ended up with is the result of that session. But what we went in with was what Infrax already was. Right. So a good example of what I mean exactly is uh, in the original game, the very, very original game, you hop off a boat at the beginning of the game and the the text that fades in says shores of Upel, right? U P E L. And, um, when we were really branching the script out to the point where like things happen and you have to save the like, cause originally, again, it was a pretty straightforward NES game. You got to destroy the evil. Uh, I remember having this conversation with Etienne where I was like, what is the, so you're the Duke, right? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, what is your dukedom called? Right. <laughs> we hadn't named it yet because we hadn't codified that because it wasn't important up until that point, right? Mm -hmm. The game up until then didn't need, it didn't, wasn't important to name the dukedom. And of course it's now, of course, the land is called Upel because we inherited the legacy. Like we could have changed it, but that, that iterative process Mike was talking about is keeping those things that feel good, right? Like why would we rename it? It's, it is called Upel. We had just decided later than you'd thought. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a bunch of that. Like there's certain things because of that writing process too. Like, um, like I said, I always hesitate to take more than just some credit for the writing because for instance, the way we code our, our game, the script, unlike a lot of other companies where like, you know, when someone's writing, they're just writing into say an Excel spreadsheet or something. Um, cause it's an older code base and the way we work. Um, actually I had to write a lot of the script directly into a code editor, like in C <laughs> Sure. (laughs) Was it C plus? Yeah. I'm not a coder and it was a lot, Uh, but because of that, when we were blocking in text, for instance, that had to be the framework to hold the text that was going to be those conversations as they expanded had to be in there. And so when Simon or one of our coders, like um, Kojak or FX or somebody added in a section for a thing, usually they'd add in some placeholder text, right? Mm -hmm. And some of it, stayed because it was already so funny. Or it'd be like the, you know, someone would set up the first half of something and I'd be like, oh, that's funny, but I'm going to change these aspects to really make it sing. And like, there's a moment, my favorite dialogue in the game, which, you know, is, it's very specific and hard to find now, but it's a, it's a really good example of what we're talking about, which is that, um, so Simon Latch, uh, added in this long section right? It's a bunch of dialogue. It's a lot. It's like the largest single (laughs) section of dialogue in the game. Cause that was an intentional choice too, is based on, you know, older NES games. You don't have a million lines of exposition, right? You're not just sitting there sitting. Yeah. That was intentional. There are very few sections in the game where there's more than like, say two sequential lines of 140 some odd characters each. You know, that was one of the hardest limitations of the game is each block of text had to be shorter than a tweet. And it was important to the creative design of the game to never make the player like go through a million of those, except in this one case, because it was for a reason. (laughs) And that block of text, when I came to it to write it, um I didn't know how the original placeholder text had been generated. I thought that it was intentional, and I thought there were some parts of it that were really wild. There was some some language in there that was just really like word jazz. And I was like, okay, I'm going to rewrite this to kind of unify it. There's some parts in here I got to save, right? This is this is amazing. <laughs> and at the end of it, I rewrote it and I came up with something that it's still in the game now, and it's some of the funniest I've ever written. But I found out later that that text was originally generated by Lib. <laughs> <laughs> right and so what i did is i i was like co-authoring with mad libs and i did not know that so i treated it as like a thing someone had originally cared a lot about so i tried to unify them and the result of that is so much better than anything <laughs> i could have done in that instance mm-hmm. just by trying to write it <laughs> it's so uh, like I, i'm worried i'll never top it
2: <laughs> it's gonna be your crowning achievement
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, if that's all I'm ever remembered for in video games, that's fair enough. Like, I can walk into the woods as an urban legend at that point.
2: (laughs) Play off,
0: uh, like, the old uh, Incredible Hulk show. It's just you walking into the distance, like... Yeah, duffel bag on the shoulder.
1: Yep. yep. Sad music. Exactly. It'll
0: be great. It'll be perfect. But you'll be known for those lines. So, with kind of the writing... or Actually, I want to... Going off the lines... As you were writing the characters that are in the game, which did you f- have one that like came to you like rose to the top amongst the others that you just like fell in love with writing for? Or I think we
1: both share the same one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Mike, what's yours? I mean, like, unless you count Harold as a character, which is a guy that only has a single line <laughs> throughout the entire game, that has to be the same one that we did the ad lib for mm-hmm. like it, yeah, I, I don't want to say his name because it's going to be like, yeah, yeah. we don't it. want to, we don't yeah. want to spoil anything. We yeah. okay.
1: definitely share because that was the other thing is that when I came in and started writing new stuff, that character was like the most Mike character that was in it. And so it was really important to like not change any of the feel. Like I had to rewrite some of his lines to make them flow differently, but we kept the feeling of him exactly the same the whole time and i remember you know in in my calls cuz a lot of the script actually got written live with etienne on a call like watching me write cuz it was just easier to collaborate that way which i've been told mm-hmm. later is crazy <laughs> but um it worked it worked really well for the project because I was able to, you know, there's like, there's not really a language barrier, but there's like a context barrier where I would want to make a a joke or use a certain phrase and it doesn't go across in text without the explanation. So writing it live, right. Was, I was able to say, Oh, hold on. This is why I'm using this word instead mm-hmm. of that word. Um, and so this character that we're both talking about was like Mike's character in the game. <laughs> and okay. so. Yeah, keep keeping him exactly as much as we could how he was. So we kind of like, now we sort of both care about him equally.
0: <laughs> well, I will, after I have played it, I will be sure to uh, message you both and be like,
1: <laughs> you'll, you'll know. Is it this person? Is yeah, it this I mean, there were so many choices too along the way where we were trying to find the tone of everything where like, you know, a thing that had been discussed that mm-hmm. I do think would have been funny as well as an option would have been, um You know, when we were talking about the, you know, trying to find that balance with humor, uh, if Mike and I were let loose on the world, I'm sure we would have just filled the script entirely full of dumb jokes. And I remember one of the pitches that I made uh, for that was, well, what if everyone else is like funny and like a normal person? And the main character, Alcidor is like a straight man to the point where people are concerned about it, Uh right? Where they're like making jokes and then he's like, oh, my life for honor. And they're like, are you cool? Man, like, you fine? Like, there are a lot of, like, cool ways we could have gone with it. I But I think where we landed feels pretty good, where it's, like, an attempt, as crazy as it seems, an attempt to make, like, a somewhat naturalistic script for an NES game, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is hard.
0: How big is the cast in this game, would you say, roughly?
2: Oh, Jesus. You know?
1: I mean, there's a lot of bit characters, right? There's a lot mm-hmm. of characters who... You know, but even a decent amount of the bit characters progress through the story. So like uh, a big amount of time was actually making dialogue pools for, say, even bit characters, right, who don't really warrant having a unique um, character dialogue. They would progress based on your morality choices. So like, mm-hmm. if for instance, you do a bunch of really evil stuff, even just like random peasant people will have different dialogue lines where they like basically like lamenting the state of the kingdom and things like that. Um, So there's a lot of the main cast isn't actually super wide. You know, there's a handful of main players. It's a pretty, you know, as Mm -hmm. far as the, the branching is where it kind of gets more complicated. The, the plot itself, right. is fairly straightforward on each of those paths, I guess. It's just that there are multiple paths and they obviously veer quite a lot from (laughs) each other, depending on how far you go along the spectrum of morality. Cause if you go, you know, if you're a straight good player that, that, Sure, that's how the game will play. But if you do some really, really, really evil stuff, it'll it'll go an entirely different place than you would expect. Probably. Oh,
0: I, well, I can't wait to see all the the the, the different options and results of the outcomes. Uh, like with with writing all this stuff though, for for you both, what would you say is the hardest thing? And uh, Hunter, as a DM as well, I I know I run into this. Well, like. What is the hardest thing for you both individually to like come up with or write? Is it like coming up with names of locations or characters or like item descriptions? Like what's what's your Achilles heel of writing?
2: For me I think it's like it's cohesion like as a whole trying to make sure that every single line of text feels like it belongs in that world mm-hmm. and then you have like it's even if you wrote something like two years ago and then you finish the text two years after it all yep. needs to feel like it's all in the same place that's something especially since i'm i'm not a native english speaker i'm sure you can figure out by now <laughs> and yeah like it's so hard for me like to make sure that every single line that you put in doesn't feel like it has more love than the other as well
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the challenge, I guess, on this script, because like I have been DMing a long time and I often would DM almost entirely improvisationally, which Mm -hmm. reflects back really well for writing. Right. Because if someone's like, make up a name, I can usually do that pretty straightforward. Um, It would actually be trying in this specific game. The problem was trying to find a way to include nuance That was mechanically necessary within the limits of the text. So, like, you know, if I only had two, and like when I say there are like only a handful of times when we go over two lines, most of the time it's like one line, right? So you have 140 characters to try and convey like a, uh, you know, there are times where like the one I remember banging my head against literally for like an hour or two to write like a couple of lines of text with uh, Etienne on a call was, you know, there are situations where you'll go talk to a quest giver. And for whatever reason, whether they're a really good guy or an evil guy, you are not who they would. You're not currently in a state where they'll give you a quest, right? Like you're not Mm. bad enough or you're not good enough. And trying to convey that in a really limited, like a very short sentence, trying to imply a handful of things at the same time, which is that this person has a quest for you. The quest requires that you be good enough to do it and that you would need to come back at a later time for that to, you know, be a thing that happens. All of that within like 140 characters was incredibly hard.
2: And also like keeping in your mind that that character is talking to the Duke of the land. So they need yep. to mm-hmm. still be respectful while declining there.
1: Right. You can't say, I don't have a quest for you or like come back later when you're good enough. You can't just literally say that because of course, especially on the, it was much more difficult on the good path. The evil path is fine because they can actually be kind of jerks, right? Because they're evil. That was great. <laughs> but on the good path, you ran, I ran into that problem being a, like Mike was saying, especially too. That really is the linchpin of the issue was that they couldn't be brusque with you, or they couldn't be, you know, they had to be respectful while telling you no.
0: <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, the, now, this is probably the toughest question I've asked. <laughs> In the world of Infernax, is a hot dog considered a sandwich or a taco? Oh.
1: Only Mike knows. A taco?
2: I'm I mean, for it to be a taco, it needs to have a hard shell or at least a corn shell. You have a corn- Does it? I mean, what guess- about
1: flour tacos? Yeah. Tacos with flour shells. They're not yeah, real. Some- They're not
2: real. Well, well, is that we've
1: just decided? <laughs>
2: They're soft shell
0: tacos. Okay. So that's the differentiation. Yes. It's not a hard. So if you leave a hot dog bun out, though, and it gets hard, does that change a hot dog into a taco?
2: You just blew my mind.
1: Here's the question which, which one of the options, corn or flour, is evil? That's really more relevant to the world of Infernax. Is our flour tortillas evil? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say flour tortillas are evil.
2: They're at least hairy if they're not evil for sure. Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know. If you eat flour tacos or flour soft shell tacos, you are technically evil in the world of Infernax. And ending on a lighter note coming from that dire and very serious <laughs> question uh, what are your guys's favorite like retro games
2: I uh, go <laughs> um
1: I mean so obviously part of why I was stoked to work on infernax is uh Zelda 2 is like a huge huge game for me because I didn't own Zelda one uh until much later than Zelda 2 like as a kid I got Zelda 2 which was. Far too hard when I was like six, but I got it first, right? So to mm. me, the first time I ever touched a Zelda game, it was Zelda 2. Uh, obviously, I mean, it's I think it's illegal to not say Mega Man 2. I think it's the law that you have to like Mega Man 2. Um, But how about this? I'll throw you a curveball since this is an RPG specific yeah. podcast. Uh, do you remember Betrayal in Antara?
0: I don't. Yeah, no
1: one does. Just me and the guy who made it. Um, So there's a uh, Raymond Feist wrote a series of fantasy books called Betrayal and Crondor. And there is a game based on it called Betrayal and Crondor. Um, And when they went to make a sequel of the game, couldn't get the rights to Crondor again. Right. He wasn't he didn't want them to do it for whatever reason. So they made a spinoff game that is functionally very similar uh, called Betrayal and Antara. That game consumed my life. My, uh, at the time, I had a stepdad who was like a younger guy. And so he uh, he and I used to like, I remember as a, a kid, you know, whenever we'd go to like Costco, right? Um, Costco used to have the big box PC games, right? Sitting out there. And the debate would always be, uh, we're going to get one game. But because him and I both liked gaming, we'd always go back and forth over like debating like, oh, well, should we get mm-hmm. Tomb Raider or should we get like Red Baron? Or are we going to get? And so when we got Betrayal and Antara, uh, it was it blew my my I just, oh, my God. Like these, between the,
0: these old retro uh, 3D dungeons, I'm, I'm feeling it.
1: Yeah, it's a very specific mood. And then if you want the other game that this is, Like we're going for I'm going for deep cuts, right? Because my answer is all the games that are great. Everyone loves those, right? Uh, But the other one that I think is like hugely formative that because I played it for so long was Castle of the Winds. I played so much Castle of the Winds, which has like a really cool, weird development story. I may be wrong, but I think technically it's the first game Epic ever published. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's got a really weird history because it's like a really straightforward it's it's a technically it's a it's not a really a roguelike, but it's very similar to roguelike dungeon crawlers. Mm-hmm. Um and man, my cousin and I, like every summer he'd come visit my dad with me because my, my parents lived in separate states. Man, we had a there was a computer in the room at my dad's house that I could use. And we would stay up, you know, we're like nine, ten. We'd stay up till the sun came up, playing Castle of the Winds. Over and like to this day, it's probably one of my most formative gaming memories. Is how much I loved Castle of the Winds, which is probably not a pretty common answer.
0: (laughs) Wow, I'm I'm checking these out. I'm you're expanding my knowledge. I love it. I love it. So thank you for that, Hunter.
1: Of course, thanks. I hope you try it. It's actually it's very much worth at least a cursory play for sure.
0: I will definitely add it to my list. Uh, Mike, what about you? What are some retro games that uh, inspired you to go into game design, and you just love?
2: I mean, like one of the first retro games I've ever played was. It's kind of a funny story. I actually told that story on our internal Slack earlier today. It was that when I my mom used to drop me at one of my friends when I was a kid to go play the Nintendo because there was only one Nintendo on the street. She would drop me at that place, and I would go to play the Nintendo there. But when I would get there, the, my friend's dad would be playing Zelda 2, and we were not allowed to play because he was already playing Zelda 2. And we were not allowed to look at him because we were disturbing him because we would ask too many questions because we were, we were small French kids that didn't understand what was going on. So he would just put us in the basement, and we would play whatever game that was in the basement. And at some point, we found out a note for a uh, well, computer. was a 486 or something, like pre-Pentium games. And there was three games on there. There was Might and Magic. And I want to say it was the first oh, one. We so had Ski so or Die, and we had a strip poker game. So <laughs> for about like a year, not a year, maybe like a summer, all we did was just play Ski or Die because we didn't understand poker and didn't understand the uh, The point behind strip poker, basically. So we just played that Ski or Die that kind of had an RPG element in there. At least we thought because we didn't understand anything in English. So we just like figured out there was a deep story in there. But yeah, we just played Ski or Die for an entire summer, which was kind of sad because it's a ski game in the summer and we're not allowed to go play outside. And also, uh, like, I couldn't replay RPGs back then because we didn't understand English at all, and it was mm-hmm. the French RPGs in Quebec.
1: Oh, that's so, so, that makes yeah.
2: me so, so yeah, We tried playing Mind Magic for a while, but we just could not get into it because we didn't understand a the lot menus. Of text. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yep, that game is hard if you know English.
0: Yeah, yeah that's true. It is. Well, very cool. Well, Mike and Hunter, thank you so much for sitting down and uh, talking about Infernix and your time with it uh, with me tonight. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thank,
2: thank you for having us. us. Yeah, man, thanks a lot. This was
1: actually a good time. I had. We do. We've done a lot of podcasts. They've all been fun, but I've enjoyed this one a lot for sure.
0: Well, I I appreciate it. And uh, for all you listeners out there um, to celebrate the recent release of Infernax, this is going up uh, next week, next week Thursdays after it's launched. Um, I will be giving away a copy of Infernax. So just respond, uh, go to at underscore RPG University and tweet be sure to follow. And tweet at, uh, let's see, what is your favorite kind of retro game, like a retro game line? What's your favorite line from an old game that you grew up with? It can be silly. It can be make no sense. It can be poorly translated. It doesn't matter. But what is your favorite line from a classic game that you grew up with? And I will pick a new winner and announce it on the next episode. And you will win a copy of Infernax on the platform of your choice. So be sure to get that in. But, but yes, once again, thank you both for coming on. But where where can people find you online? What do you have cooking besides Infernax, like personally or or whatnot? What can where can people find you?
1: Well, you can find, uh, the studio, uh, we're on Facebook, but you know, it's just us now. No one else is there. Uh, Berserk (laughs) Studios on Facebook, but, uh, we're also, you can find us on Twitter at, at Berserk Studio, but that's Berserk with a Z, -Z B-E-R-Z-E-R-K. Um, you can find Infernax, the game at, at Infernax, I-N-F-E-R-N-A-X. Uh, you can find me at Bond Hunter Bond, and you can find Mike at Mike Dukarm Suck. No S,
2: right? Yeah, no s. Yeah. Thank you, He's got- Twitter limitations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was so close. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, as far as we don't have anything publicly announced um, mm-hmm. as a next step, we always have a lot of projects internally we're working on, though. So uh, we'll be, we're will be we stoked to have Infranax out. Uh, we're actually a bit ahead of the ball as far as um, being ready for that launch. Uh, and yeah, we're just actually pretty stoked that now that it's finally out after all this time, we get to... Uh, pick up some other projects that like have been sort of waiting they've just been patiently in the wings
0: can't wait to see what what you all have cooking and i can't wait to get my hands on infernax but thank you to each and every one of you who's listened to today. Be sure to rate and review us on your preferred podcast service, as I'd really appreciate it. If you have an RPG you would like us to feature on an episode, tweet at underscore RPG University with the hashtag RPGU with your suggestion, or you can share your own favorite RPGs and memories directly with me on Twitter at SolidSnake120. As always, everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, be kind to one another, class dismissed.